Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's Deputy Chief Justice to hear an application by the State Capture Commission's legal team for a summons to be brought for former President Jacob Zuma to testify. The UN Child Agency UNICEF calls for governments in eastern and southern Africa to urgently and safely reopen schools as the costs of continued school closures escalate across the region. And in economics news, Kenyan insurance firms to be exempted from capital adequacy requirements for the six months between July and December this year. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the UN must continue to lead the way and ensure a transformative and inclusive future for all nations, especially in the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic. World leaders were converging in a virtual meeting to mark the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. Staking center stage at the event was the coronavirus pandemic. Speaking in a pre-recorded message, Ramaphosa said world leaders had to work together to tackle global challenges such as the pandemic and climate change. To resolve our global challenges, be they health emergencies, transnational crime, conflict and war, climate change, migration or natural disasters, we must work together. The UN system is the best means by which we can address and overcome these global challenges. It is only through multilateralism that we can forge common strategies for the benefit and advancement of all. We must ensure that the sovereign quality of nations is protected. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention has retracted its position on the possible transmission of the coronavirus in the air. The CDC says the guidelines on the virus particles being airborne are not correct and will be updating its recommendations. The World Health Organization has not changed its policy on the transmission of the coronavirus and said it would engage with the CDC over the findings. Mike Ryan, the WHO's Executive Director of Emergency Programs, says the agency still believes the disease is primarily spread through droplets. The ruling junta in Mali has named a new president. Former Defence Minister and retired Colonel Bandao Asimi Gweta was appointed vice president. Mali's ruling junta has come under intense pressure from its West African neighbours to return power to civilians following the August school that overthrew President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. West African leaders insisted last week that the interim president who will oversee an 18-month transition period be a civilian or soldier. And Darwin Gweta were appointed by a group of electors chosen by the junta. 
The body of late U.S. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last week at the age of 87, will lie in state outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday and Thursday this week. So members of the public can pay their respects. A private ceremony will take place at the court on Wednesday morning, attended by Ginsburg family, friends and other Supreme Court justices. Ginsburg will be interred at Arlington National Cemetery in a private ceremony next week. And archaeologists in Egypt have discovered 27 coffins at the ancient um, necropolis of Saqqara, a burial ground that is also home to one of the world's oldest pyramids. They were found stacked into burial shafts that have not yet been opened. Saqqara is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In July, Egypt restarted international flights and reopened major tourist attractions, including the Great Pyramids of Giza after months of closure due to the coronavirus pandemic. And in sports news, the South African Premiership side Black Leopards completed their PSL playoffs with another win against TTM at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg. It was the Limpopo base side's fourth victory of the campaign. The match wrapped up the 2019-2020 professional football season. Leopards coach Morgan Shivambu says his players have shown a lot of improvement. Yeah, it was a good thing, collecting 12 points out of 12. So that's a great achievement. Like I've said before the game that... We just need to control the game from the start. That's what we did, especially first half. It was nice to watch, especially first half, the way we've been rotating the ball in the middle field. And there's something that, uh, since we came to the bubble, we've improved a lot, especially on the sides, playing wing play. We were very good on that one. Also set pieces, that's why we're always getting the goals. People always look leopard as a team that will always try and penetrate straight on the penalty area. But since we came here, we, we showed lots of improvement. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Our South Africa's Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo will, on the 9th of October, hear an application by the Commission's legal team for a summons to be brought for former President Jacob Zuma to testify. This after Zuma's lawyers informed the Commission that he would be unable to appear this week as scheduled due to his preparing for his arms deal criminal trial due to proceed in December and his doctors advising that he not move around too much due to the state of his health and his age. Busi Chimombe reports. Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo set down the dates for former President Jacob Zuma to testify for the 16th to the 20th of November. Zondo said in the interim he would hear an application to compel Zuma to take the stand, which would go ahead with or without him and his legal counsel. The position as it stands is the application brought by the legal team of the Commission for the authorization of a summons. The issuing of a summons against Mr. Zuma will proceed on the 9th of October at 9 o'clock and the dates of 16 to 20 November 2020 have been determined for his appearance. With regards to the availability of Zuma's legal team, 
Zondo made it clear that the commission does not negotiate dates with witnesses. He went on to say he is still waiting for Zuma to depose an affidavit on matters related to ESCOM and the testimony of former board chair Zola Tzotzi and former SAA chairperson Dudumieni's advisor, Nick Linnell, about a particular meeting they said they had with Zuma in 2015. The commission might not uh, compel him to respond to all the affidavits that uh, have been filed, but certainly there are certain affidavits that the commission uh, believes are very important for him to deal with. And uh, in regard to those, as the legal team makes a request uh, for me to issue directives to him to submit affidavits, I will consider those requests and make a decision on the basis of each uh, application or request. The Commission then proceeded with the evidence of Free State Human Settlements Head of Department, Tim Mukhesi. Mukhesi was on this occasion testifying on a 2010 scheme by the Department to build low-cost housing prior to his appointment to the position. He says... It resulted in an estimated 500 million rands in loss for the department. The houses that were supposed to be built at that part of 14,706, this is the estimate yes. of how much it will cost, 500 million. Yes. But already we had made advance payments. Yes. And, and that 408,666 million uh, is probably what has not been accounted for in respect of the advance payments that were made. Because yes. it's not in all instances where material were not delivered and houses were not built. The scheme to avoid funds allocated to the department reverting back to the National Treasury saw the department irregularly select contractors and pay them substantial advance payments. Some contractors simply just took the money and disappeared. Zondo questioning Mukhesi. I just understand how anybody could do that. I mean, you know that there are people who, there are service providers who have been found to be disqualified to do this kind of job. And during the open tender process that you have now decided to teach. And then you say now all of you must come back qualified or disqualified. We, we will see you, you are now all eligible to be given the job. I can't understand how anybody could, could do that. Is no, it, should, it shouldn't have been like, like that. Mohesi continues on the stand on Tuesday and will be followed by the former head of department, Mpo Mkwena, under whose watch the scheme was implemented. That report by Busi Chimombe. The Borno State Governor in northeast Nigeria, Babangana Zulum, has called attention to the recruitment of youth into the ranks of the terror groups in the country. Speaking at a meeting with the chairperson of the House Committee on the Northeast East Development Commission, Khadija Bukar, the governor says this is due to the level of unemployment in the country, thus putting the lives of the children in avoidable danger. Collins Atohengba reports that he has appealed to the public to assist it with information that could help to record more successes against bandits and insurgents.
Bolon State has been the world theater in the fight against terrorism. The cry by the state governor Babagana Zulum is not unconnected with the ruinous act of enlisting children and vulnerable youths into terror gangs when they should have been gainfully employed or involved in self-development exercises or be back to school for further education. The governor who himself was attacked not long ago by bandits while on tour of security facilities in his states says danger looms if appropriate steps are not taken to arrest the situation through job creation and the presence of a healthy atmosphere for sustainable development. If nothing is being done, elimination failing, we shall face very serious challenges, more than what we are facing now. Because right now, the insurgents are recruiting many of our children into the fight because of increasing unemployment rate. There is a need for this very important committee to interface with the larger house committee to look into the possibility of empowering the teaming youth growth in the state. While socio-political and economic solutions are being sought to solve the lingering problem of insecurity, the army says indoctrination through ideological biases is one of the reasons that the war against terror has remained protracted despite the huge successes which the military has recorded against bandits. The chief of defense information at the army headquarters, General John Enetcher, says all stakeholders are involved in the program of reorientation. We are not assuming at all because it's a group that their own motivation is based on ideology. And one of the things that is difficult to keep kinetically is ideology. So ideology can be defeated mostly by all stakeholders, particularly those that speak to their conscience, that speak and touch their spirits. And I assure you that all the stakeholders are working together. They are now sensitizing the general public to believe in the core religious practices and follow it and not to be deceived. If you see a stranger, somebody that is strange in your environment, you report particularly those not within the urban centers, the rural areas. We are not living in Tunontong, we are following consensuously. In one of the communities where more troops have been deployed to safeguard the life and property of the people who have suffered unlimited attacks from the bandits and terrorists in southern Kaduna, where almost everyone had abandoned their homes in flight for the safety of their lives, the head of Kakao village, Ilya Garba, says the presence of security agents have given the people confidence and they have begun to return to their homestead. From the day they came, things have changed drastically. People have started coming back now. People have started coming back to their houses. That is to say they are beginning to have confidence that the presence of government is here, security are here. So we are beginning to see that the area is becoming safer. The commander of one mechanized brigade in Kaduna, General Olushegun Abai, says the army will need tactical assistance from the people in information dissemination to deal with possible attack and that the means of communicating such information will be made available. For the security agency, information is like eyes I used to see. If there's no information, so please talk to your people. And uh, please, if there's anyone that you know has been collaborating, we're not saying that you should come out and then endanger yourself. We always open means of communication to which you can always get across to us. In consonance with the view of General Abai, the Kaduna State Commissioner for Internal Security, Samuel Aruan, says more troops being deployed will help raise the security situation, but that it will take the cooperation of the people if security agents are to succeed in their assignments. We are here uh, to strengthen security assets in the general area and to also engage the communities here on the need for them to support security agencies, on the need for them to know that uh, security is a two-way uh, traffic, it's not a one-way traffic. And uh, we had a successful 
uh, interaction with them. The Nigerian army has recorded a number of successes in recent times, leading to the surrendering of about 800 members of one of the terror groups. But despite the breakthrough in the war against insurgents, there has been countless number of attacks which led to the loss of innocent lives in many communities in northern Nigeria. With renewed zeal occasioned by the provision of equipment and deployment of troops, the fight to restore peace in all corners of Nigeria may not linger for much longer. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nusa Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Kenya's Chief Justice David Maraga has written to the country's President Uhuru Kenyatta recommending that he dissolves Parliament for its failure to enact a law on gender balance. Maraga's recommendations follow six petitions calling for the dissolution of Parliament, Sarah Kimani reports. The enactment of the two-thirds gender rule was among laws the Kenyan parliament was supposed to do within five years after the passing of the 2010 constitution. Ten years since the promulgation of the Constitution, it has not. There have been four attempts, all of which have been defeated on the floor of the House. Last year, the bill failed to sail through due to lack of quorum. Now, the ball is in President Kenyatta's court, but it is complicated. If he dissolves Parliament, he will have ended his second and final term in office prematurely. 
Kenya heads to the next general elections in 2022. There are no timelines on when the president should act on the recommendation, but the law contains an unusual enforcement mechanism which indicates that if parliament fails to enact the legislation, the chief justice shall advise the president to dissolve parliament and the president shall dissolve parliament. Under Article 81B of the Kenyan Constitution, the two-thirds gender principle requires that not more than two-thirds of members of elective bodies shall be of the same gender. At the moment, the Kenyan parliament falls short. Only 23% of members of parliament are women. In a rejoinder, Speaker of Parliament Justin Muturi said it wasn't realistic to call for the dissolution of parliament. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. A growth-focused ENT Minerals, a South African commodity brokerage and trading house specializing in coal, has placed its bid for Optimum Coal Mine after the mine face liquidation and has been in business rescue since February 2018. Attaining the mine would highlight a great opportunity for the 80% black youth-driven company to boost the country's economic growth as well as develop the areas around the mine through its inclusive approach with communities. It aims to be an enabler for black excellence and assist with President Sul Ramaphosa's agenda on economic recovery. Director and Head of Legal at ENT Minerals, Mnueba Gobodo, joins us on the line. Mnueba, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lillian. Thank you for having me on here. Now, how far are you in concluding the acquisition of this mine? Um, well, at the moment, the BRPs have released um, their BRP plan, their business rescue plan, and we have appeared in the business rescue plan. So at this stage, we are awaiting um, the date for the creditors meeting for the vote. So it seems like we are almost at the end of the process. Now, what plans do you have for this mine, especially with concerns regard- regarding coal mining and its impact on the environment? Well, currently our our vision with the mine is that uh, being a gem and a national uh, key point for the country in terms of the mineral sector, our idea is to firstly get the mine operational and see its life of mine through, and through seeing its life of mine, create um, the rehabilitation of the mine uh, to get it uh, within the, the, the mining charters uh, ideas in terms of rehabilitation and environmental affairs, etc., and now let's speak about uh, how young people will benefit from ENT Minerals' successful bidding of this mine. Um, because ENT is a youth-driven company, um, our vision is to, we hope to inspire um, our generation of youth to understand that um, we are capable of uh, going off to deals of this size, complex deals of this size, and we are capable of making a greater impact on South African, on South African, the South African uh, economy. Uh, we think it's our time as the youth to take the baton and to, to, to lead this country to its next um, economic phase. And we think by closing a deal such as this and making it a, a success story, we'll be able to convey that message more clearly to our, to our peers. 
And also the communities around the mine, you know, the, you speak of uh, developing areas around the mine through um, an inclusivity approach with the community. Speak to us about that. So our bid proposes um, an equity stake um, to be held in trust for the community and an equity stake uh, offered to the to the workers. Uh, the workers and the community go hand in hand, and so we've uh, proposed two equity um, 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 offerings so that we have buy-in from the community and we have buy-in from the workers. Um, in this aspect, then we'll be able to have deeper knowledge and deeper understanding of the needs of the community. The community has a say in and how the, the miners govern and how it affects them as the people that live in the surrounding areas whose families work on the mine, etc. So we thought that was a very important uh, synergy for us to build and to continue to build in many structures that we'll be going forward with in other mining uh, endeavors of ours. Now, tell us more about ENT Minerals and what ENT has been doing to, in, in changing the lives of many South Africans. Um, ENT is quite a young company, but as a young company and a family-based company, we always believe that um, community uh, works. Our community that works together grows together, and so we've endeavoured to see how we can uh, increase connectivity. For instance, uh, in terms of Wi-Fi con- connectivity in the surrounding communities, it's been COVID now. We know a lot of the community members don't have access to the e-learning uh, systems that um, are available and trying to see how we can bolster the fiber community in, 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 in the surrounding communities of the mine. And that's just an example of how we feel that we can tackle some of the, the, small, um, the small issues that uh, isolate communities from, from the economy. Uh, we also are big into education. Uh, we've um, um, sponsored a few students um, along the years as a young company and uh, have plans to increase that um, in terms of access to education, uh, building of schools, building of amenities, sports complexes, uh, nurturing our athletes, uh, etc. So those are some of the early ideas that ENT has and started implementing in terms of their, their greater community investment. Now, as the youth of a country and uh, being involved in um, this young entity, what does it do for you, yourself and your business partners and, 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 you know, the people around you with regards to the work that you're doing and giving back to, um, you know, the communities and, uh, you know, taking part in uh, the economic recovery of South Africa? Um, we feel that, you know, as, as, as young people in South Africa who, who were born at the advent of democracy, um, it is our absolute uh, responsibility to take South Africa forward, to take it out of the current uh, issues that it's going in, that it's going through, because it is us and our children that are going to live in the South Africa, and this is such a great country. And so, it is very important for the community buy-in, because, like I said, a community community that works together grows together. And if we are all invested in the growth of the country, uh, and we all have skin in the game, we feel that it it becomes a, a easier job because all our narratives are the same in terms of great, uh, building a stronger South Africa, a stronger economy for South Africa. Noba, all the best, and uh, thank you for all the great work that you're doing as ENT, and we look forward to touching base with you and, uh, you know, finding out uh, how far things have gone and, uh, you know, and seeing how um, the communities around you are developing and the work that you do.
Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. And that is uh, Director and Head of Legal at ENT Minerals, Mnueba Gobodo, and he was joining us on the line. It is 7.27 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Womanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Womanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance, from an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms, on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has urged the United Nations and global leaders to strengthen cooperation with, re- with various regional bodies such as the African Union. The ruling junta in Mali has named a new president, former Defence Minister and retired Colonel Bahn Dao, and authorities in Botswana say they have launched an investigation into how toxins produced by a water-dwelling bacteria has cause the deaths of hundreds of elephants. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza.
Afrika amka na unai Thank you, Anne. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The UN Child Agency UNICEF is calling for governments in eastern and southern Africa to urgently safely reopen schools as the cost of continued school closures escalate across the region. UNICEF cites lost learning, rising violence and child labour, as well as forced child marriages as some of the consequences of schools being closed. The agency's call to safely reopen schools follows scientific evidence which shows children are not super super spreaders of COVID-19 and are the least affected by the virus in the region. Now for more on this issue we are joined by UNICEF's James Elder. James good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hey Lulu good morning. Now James just an overview of uh, what it's like in the region in terms of countries that have begun reopening schools, like South Africa, for instance. Um, schools have been up and running and reopened for some time. Uh, but, but the rest of the region, what's happening? So it's a mixed story, exactly. So we're getting increasing good news that you know, we've got around, 30, let's say there's 21 countries in eastern and southern Africa and around 13 have returned at least some kids to classrooms. So they could be phase reopenings, they could be exam goers. This is really important, of course, because if we miss a whole year of school, well, firstly, we have all the risks that you just spoke about, the protection crisis, the learning crisis, but also you'll have, I mean, you'll have two grades of, of first years next year. So there's so many elements to this. But, of course, loss of learning and spikes in teen pregnancy are one of the biggest. So we are starting to see governments. Yesterday, the government of Uganda made a decision to get a couple of grades back uh, in the coming weeks. We're looking at some of the big countries, particularly in East Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, Rwanda, waiting on decisions from them. But as you said, Lulu, the evidence now, despite this pandemic, is that the best place for children is in the classroom. Now, just reflecting on on how much has been lost by children since the um, COVID-induced lockdowns began, you know, we've had uh, or we know that in in certain areas because of poverty and inaccessibility inaccessibility to online education, it has been quite difficult. And a lot of children going back to the classes is, is the best thing that can ever happen. Now, in terms of that, how do we work around, um, you've just mentioned the fact that you have two uh, first first class uh, first grade classes next year you know how do we work around that and ensure that uh, there is growth and development and also looking at the children and how um, psychologically it impacts on them as well yeah there's exactly there's so many things there on one hand we know that these kids you know governments mums and dads have made incredible efforts when children have been out of school to get some online learning, to get some remote learning. And I think that's been a really important thing, but it's also important that we're honest and we realize that about one in two kids have seen none of that. So this pandemic has reminded us again that there's a vast digital divide. And that's a really important thing that we acknowledge because you know, it's, you know, children need digital access, not just for horrible times like COVID-19, 
but they need it if they're going to have an opportunity going forward. So we've spoken before about the incredible population going on now, and everyone talks about children of the future. Well, they really are. If these children now can be in a classroom, get a quality learning, get some internet access at home, then, then Africa has a chance to be sort of the envy of an aging Europe. But that is going to take some real work. And that's what this pandemic has again underlined. The, the real inequities, yet again, a horrible event, hits the poorest, hits the poorest hardest. But again, getting kids into school now, because let's be honest, it's not going to be perfect. We know that. No one's going to say that this is an exercise in perfection. But we do have to accept, as you said, A, the science is clear. Children are the least likely to catch and the least likely to spread. But B, countries are open, you know, business is open, travel is open. So, so adults have resumed movement interaction despite them being the most vulnerable to COVID. So when we take all of that and we accept that it's not going to be perfect, but the dangers are much greater out of the classroom, then, you know, as UNICEF's regional director, Mohammed Paul said, is we cannot risk a lost generation, particularly at this moment, Lulu, in the continent's history. And what about, uh, you know, families who've just lost hope in the sense that they think uh, it's not even worth it going back, uh, taking their kids back to school? How do we ensure that every child who was out of, who was in school or any child who, who hasn't been to school, hasn't had any formal schooling is taken to school or goes back to school? Uh, it's a great question. It's a real heartbreaker, to be honest, mm. because it's what I see when I talk to kids quite a lot here in Kenya, here in Nairobi, where I am, um, and you realize that, that all the numbers we hear about, particularly girls who won't go back, then you see that, you know, you, you listen to that girl, you listen to that human face. So her parents say, look, you know, we, we just can't afford her to do another school year, or we've just seen that, you know, she's more valuable around the house. And you see this little girl who usually is pretty brilliant and committed at school, and you just see those hopes drain so there's lots of things we still can do for example even where i am here you know unicef kenya one of the things they're doing not just is trying to help get schools ready with basic hand washing supplies and so on but once government hopefully here makes that decision to say right we're going to get kids back into school let's say next month so they don't lose a year we're going to start going around communities again explaining going back to those basics of come on we remember we know why it's so important to get your kids in school we know particularly why it's so critical to get your girls there, how they are going to be such incredible assets um, in, a, in a literal and figurative sense, you know, in a financial and moral sense in your community. So it's about us getting back into those communities and, and sharing those messages that I think families really understood. But as you say, Lulu, there is a risk, and we've seen it before with Ebola. We know it happens. The longer girls, particularly poor girls, are out of school, the higher chance they never return. Now, James, some some countries have sort of adjusted their academic years, and uh, you know, with some looking at uh, the end of the end of the year, which is December, um, now readjusting their calendars to maybe uh, the new year sometime in in end of January or end of February, whichever way it works. Looking at you know learners who are maybe in their final year of of, of uh, um, high schooling and uh, you know the their abilities to perform with regards to some writing their final exams. For instance, in South Africa, we have matriculants who are going all out. You know, even studying on the weekends to ensure that they do well at the end of their year, which is uh, now uh, they're going to be starting. I think the exams uh, sometime in November. 
um, other countries looking who are who do Cambridge um, have different calendars. How do we ensure that these young people are adequately equipped to write their exams and uh, be able to achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve um, before the COVID pandemic? And uh, what happens then to the ones who sort of fall through the cracks, who are not able to catch up? Yeah, it's brilliant. Look, I think that on one hand, as you allude to, so many kids have been, you know, they, they, they've been in the same boat. They've all been enduring and, and in fairness, you know, complete credit to, <clears throat> to this generation who are adapting and have been shown so, su- such resilience. But yeah, for those matriculants for whom this is such a big year, and as you say, in the education sense, but also their seniors, you know, this is a coming of age for them. And they've had to adapt to, you know, doing that at home, not at school. But I think, you know, we're seeing ministries of education realise that we need to make sure that the playing field is level, that we're going to make sh- have to make sure that, the, you know, that, that universities are aware that these children have missed out a block of time. And I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, empathy and understanding and ensuring that there is, that there is fairness um, for these young people who, as you say, have missed learning but now have some of the biggest exams of their life. But again, you know, we go back to what we said at the start, Lulu, it also goes to levels of equity. There will be some of these most vulnerable kids who are matriculants uh, in places like South Africa who wouldn't have had digital access this year um, as much as at least other, other kids. And, and therefore, they've always been behind the eight ball. They're the things as well that this pandemic has reminded us. We need to level that side of the playing field, not just to be fair for kids, but because that's how we're going to build, you know, much more prosperous societies when all of these children have access to the best of technologies. Now, James, concerns of, uh, um, you know, a second wave and fears of a second wave, um, you know, coming in, in, in all countries. What does this do in terms of um, are schools going to be closed again if the second wave comes and happens? Or it, will we just need to continue um, to be business as usual? Yeah, I think one thing UNICEF has learned on that, on that front, if we just talk to children, talk of children rather, it's not just our mandate is children first. We're, we're smart about it, but we've this, you know, everything has evolved. Evidence has evolved through this pandemic. But what we are now seeing, what we've learned with real context, not just in, you know, Europe and so on, we're learning it here on the continent, is that because of the science, because, you know, less than 3% of school-age kids will ever catch it, as you said at the start, they're not the super spreaders. They're not even the first ones to spread in a family, even if they're asymptomatic. We didn't know that. Now we do. So if there is a second wave, and I do think a lot of countries in this region um, will buffer that because they did, you know, lockdowns and curfews for quite a lot longer and certainly earlier than other countries around the world. But if there is, we still know... Um, that the best place for kids is in the classroom. And governments have had time now, they've had time to prepare hand-washing facilities, which again, just like digital access, should have been there anyway. But again, if we can get those there and they haven't been there in the past, then all the better. But whatever happens, um, we focus on the guidelines, we focus on doing it safely. James, if you can hear me, we seem to be losing that connection. (laughs) 
All right, uh, J- we have uh, lost uh, James Elder there, who is uh, the United Nations Children's Fund, the East and Southern Africa office um, head, and he was joining us from Nairobi and Kenya, just chatting about, um, you know, the impact of schools reopening and the call for the w- from the WHO, um, you know, emphasizing that uh, countries should reopen schools, um, you know, in terms of uh, during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and that uh, the best place uh, for children to be is in the classroom. Uh, James Elder there, United Nations Children's Fund, East and Southern Africa office, uh, joining us on the line from Nairobi and Kenya. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. At 7.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The World Health Organization says it is encouraged by South Africa's declining COVID-19 trend. The UN health body has commended the country's government for what it describes as determined efforts to bend the COVID-19 pandemic curve. To discuss this further, Samora Mangesi spoke to the WHO's Dr. Ambrose Talisuna. I think the COVID-19 progress that we find very encouraging in South Africa is that I think South Africa now is witnessing a, a declining number of new cases per day. A couple of two, less than two months ago, there were like uh, over 12,000 cases per day, but now we are seeing less than 2,000 cases per day. But this is also associated with a declining number of deaths per day and also a declining number of hospital admissions. In addition to that, there is also a declining number of bed occupancy rates and also demands for oxygen. As you know, oxygen is used uh, for treating severe and critical cases, but there is a reducing demand on oxygen and ventilators. So if you triangulate all these indicators, it seems like really the outbreak is on a, on, on a decline. What do you think this progress is mostly attributed to? I think this progress is multifactorial because, you know, in outbreak uh, response, uh, there are several several mechanisms that are put in place. I think South Africa uh, set up a very robust coordination mechanism at the national level, the National COVID, uh, Coronavirus Command Council, which is headed by the president, and then decisions are making, made very quickly. There is a ministerial advisory committee that issues different policy advisories on key areas of the response. So multi-sectoral ministerial advisory committee. There is also the project management office, which is chaired by the director general of the, the National Department of Health and the incident management team. And you know, as WHO, we are really recommending incident management teams to be in place. And this is really in line with our incident management system. But also at the provincial level, the provinces set up a coordination mechanism. They are, they are under different names. Some provinces, they call them station rooms. In others, they call them nerve centers. Others call them war rooms. Now, that is from coordination. But also, South Africa adopted a very, a very robust uh, community uh, screening and testing strategy early in the outbreak to be able to identify cases. And so this community screening and testing strategy, I think, has helped and it integrated both public and private sector labs. And then also in terms of readiness, I think for case management, again, uh, set up hospitals, some of them are field hospitals, which are like set up uh, both for public and private. So all these things have contributed. And then in terms of contact tracing, for example, uh, we normally do traditional manual contact tracing 
and South Africa is augmenting that system with the with the digital uh, digital uh, contact tracing. And I think this is really the way to go. We need to use technology. We need to use digital approaches to be able to improve contact tracing and case management. Does it appear as though the country is out of the woods, given the trends that you're observing? I would be cautious to, to say we are out of the woods. You know, as we've seen in uh, in, uh, in Europe and in the United States, COVID is a very challenging disease. So if you slack an intervention that you, you move from uh, this risk-based approach which South Africa adopted very, very early on with extreme measures at uh, level five and then has been gradually doing that, which is another best practice. And now we have moved, moved yesterday to level one. Uh, I think we have to be vigilant. We really have to continue to be vigilant. I really think that the population should not think that the move from level two to level three to level one means that we should uh, uh, change our risk perception. The risk of COVID-19 is ever there. It's, it's going to be there. And the population needs to, to know that so that they put in place, uh, they continue to adhere to those measures, uh, hand washing, uh, physical distancing, and also the use of face masks, especially when we are indoors. I think the use of face masks in indoor places is really, we know that the indoor transmission is, is worse than outdoor transmission. So really, we are not yet out of the woods. We could get a resurgence. And I think uh, for both the government and, and the population, and uh, that the government is really uh, working on finalizing the resurgence plan, which maintains the current ongoing interventions, but also kind of like deals with uh, trying to identify areas which will be having uh, like a reversal of the strength that we are seeing so that those hotspots can be dealt with in the provinces, in the wards, and in the sub-districts. And lastly, could you tell us about the role that uh, the World Health Organization has been playing to help African countries to fight the pandemic, particularly in the areas of testing, contact tracing, and the training of health workers? I think in the area of, of testing, uh, uh, you know, as this when this outbreak started, you know, we had only two labs that could diagnose COVID-19 here in South Africa and in, in Senegal. We have moved the testing capacity to, to, to 47 countries now. We are also supporting countries to decentralize their testing capacity so that it's not only in the capitals. Uh, when we got the first, uh, when before we even got the first cases, we assessed all the 47 countries in what we call the readiness assessment to see how countries were for each of the 10 critical intervention pillars, and then we helped those countries to develop uh, what we have called strategic preparedness and response plans. So we started plugging those gaps. We started training health workers, and then when the lockdown started, border closures, we were forced to shift to a budget training. We've done close to. 40 virtual trainings across different areas. In infection prevention and control, for example, we have trained uh, over 50,000 health workers because this is really one critical piece of, of, of support so that our health workers are protected. We also have helped countries to receive critical supplies, personal protective equipment, laboratory supplies and reagents because, again, this was uh, from moving to what we require for testing, but also some of them are moving to automated, automated uh, lab testing. And then in terms of strengthening surveillance, what we did, we have the regional strategy, which we call integrated surveillance and response, and we reinforced this in every country and, and made sure that we trained rapid response teams. So there are several areas. And then, of course, WHO continues to issue guidelines, guidelines on opening up, uh, relaxation of physical distancing measures, guidelines on countries to begin reopening up so that we have to live with this, uh, this virus because we are going to have this virus for some time. Until we get a, an efficacious vaccine, what we have to do is to suppress the virus 
and then uh, make sure that somehow the community gets to some semblance of normal economic activities can begin to return. But at the same time, we have to be following up the number of cases to ensure that much as we are opening up the economy and people's lives are coming back, we are still not seeing an increase in the number of cases. That was the WHO's Dr. Ambrose Talisuna speaking to Samora Mangesi. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. A very good morning. The total consumption poverty line in Zimbabwe for an average family of five people grew by 10% to 17.24 US dollars in August this year. This means that an average household required that much to purchase both food and non-food items for them not to be deemed poor. The latest data from the Zimbabwe National Statistics Agency has shown that in July, the poverty line was pegged at $15.57. The Black Management Forum of South Africa believes that a successful economic recovery plan requires a rapid transformation in business. The forum argues that current policies favor big businesses against black, small, medium and micro-enterprises businesses. President Sol Ramaphosa is soon expected to announce an economic recovery action plan following engagements with the partners at NEDLEC. The BMF's head of policy, Mondin Lofu, says government needs to act as a watchdog to ensure that radical transformation is implemented in the business sector. You've got to have a government that's going to agitate, that's going to have organizations that drive this agenda for them as well, because they can't do it on their own. And that private capital begins to be humanized, to become more human in its development of products and services without the pressure of BMF, without the pressure of Abasa, etc., etc., and the pressure of government. We probably would not be where we are in terms of these policies that have made a little bit of traction, which ought to have a spillover, including Mm. the development of black business. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Mondi says that corruption remains a threat in the development of South Africa's economy. Corruption is the twin sin of leadership. And uh, if it's not dealt with, it spoils the, the whole basket of leadership. If there is no concerted effort in driving the development of leadership capacity on the ground going up, business will never have confidence in the South African government, albeit in the, the national, national drive to develop uh, this emerging market. Namibia's National Housing Enterprise Board Chairperson, Sam Shivuti, has been appointed to head the Revenue Agency. Shivuti returns to Treasury, where he left in 2014 after serving for 18 months as an interim commissioner. The process of employing the national tax boss has been mired in controversy in the past two years with concerns that spies were highly involved in the selection process. Insurance companies in Kenya will be exempted from capital inadequacy requirements or rather 
Adequacy requirements for the six months between July and December this year. The move is expected to help the industry cope with the impact of COVID-19, which has eroded the earnings of many Kenyans and some are unable to keep up with regular premium payments. The sector also faces the risk of higher claims as the pandemic continues to depress the country's economy. The U.S. dollar is trading at 382.20 Nigerian Nara, 11.29 Botswana Pula, 107.45 Kenyan Shilling and 90.95 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One U.S. dollar costs 5 rule 40, Russia 76 rubles 4, India 73 rupees 42. In China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.78 and in South Africa, it will cost you 16 rand 59. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,911 platinum at $894 pounds. Brent crude oil is at $41.88 a barrel. It's Channel Africa from Auckland Park in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer, Bluyanda Maome, technical producers, Fiso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. I'll take us to the top of the hour. For the news is Turn On The Sun by Stimela featuring Tandiswa Mazwai and Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Goodbye and stay safe. <laughs>